Welcome to the Living Faith Fellowship Conference podcast. The Living Faith Fellowship is a peer network of like-minded churches united under a single biblical authority and one common mission. You're about to hear a message from one of the many conferences hosted by the Living Faith Fellowship every year. We pray it's a blessing. And uh, we'll get into this next session here in just a second. I'll ramble and make up stuff until people can find their way in, and then, and then we'll get started. It is, uh, it is, it's always a joy to come to Oakland Heights. It's a lot of fun. So, if you're home folk here, thank you for hosting this. You guys are great, and uh, it's it's always great coming back here and spending time with you guys. Uh, I will say also that. I really do love these conferences that our fellowship puts on. I really do. And uh, that might sound weird because we host one. I don't mean it that way. I I love coming to the ones that we don't host. (laughs) The ones we host are a lot of work, but the ones we don't host are just fun. And I I love them because the the conferences are all on purpose. And and they're, they're on point. They're on subjects that matter. And, you know, we just unapologetically go after it and lay out, what needs to be proclaimed and reinforced and hope to provide some solid biblical tools to everybody who wants to come and listen and learn and, and understand better how to apply the things that they've been learning their whole lives. And so that's what we do. And and I I really enjoy it. And I really encourage you, if you haven't been able to make the time to to get to all three, um, you try and do that. It's it's really worthy. And maybe you're working and maybe you can't get away for the other two that aren't here or whatever, but um, come to Ohio, come see us, come, you know, or over over New Year's is maybe a better time. You're off anyway. Uh, do that. It's, it's, it's well worth it. Okay, so let's get rolling. Um, today I've been asked to cover this subject on identifying training and sending leaders. And uh, so that's that's what we're going to get into. I I guess um, that James thought that, well, you know, we've had a little bit of experience in doing this in our life and ministry, and so it would be a good subject to address and talk about. Um, It really is, I'm going to do my best to try and you know, give us biblical bases on the things that we're going to look at. Um, I want it to be intensely practical. I hope that that this can provide some level of, you know, step-by-step how to follow some biblical prescription that will help you and your application thereof. Um, And if that's the case, then then I think the Lord will be pleased. So before we jump into it, why don't I just pray? And uh, by the way, if you didn't, there are some handouts in the back if you didn't get those and you can sneak back there and grab those. Heavenly Father, thank you, as always, for the Lord Jesus and for all the things you've provided for us, and thank you for your patience with us. Uh, We're we're slow to learn sometimes, and uh, we need the repetition and the overview time and time again to to sink in. And and Lord, may this be one of those times. May you take your word and many of the places that many of us have seen many times and, and just help to enlighten it in a way that we can see and make application maybe like never before. And so um, our, our desire, obviously, is just to please you, but we know that 
we can't possibly do that ourselves. So you promised to give your Holy Spirit to be our teacher, and that's what we're asking now, that you would fulfill that in this room at this time right now, that he would be our teacher, and that as a result, we actually learn something, and we can actually make changes as necessary in our lives and ministry strategies. Pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so, you know, there's no big surprise, obviously. We come to a discipleship conference. We're here um, because... The Great Commission says that's what we're supposed to do. And, that, and that's where everything should start. We, we should recognize that the Lord made it really simple for simple people. He, he just said, look, there's really only one thing you need to do. You need to go into all the world and you need to make disciples of all nations. That's what you need to do. Now, there's a lot to that. I get it. But, you know, the main thing is pretty clear. And so... What we want to do is we want to learn always how to be as effective as we possibly can in doing that job. And that's what this conference is all about, and the different rooms and the breakouts and the options that you have and the ways to get the whole general philosophy and specific tools and the morning sessions and all these things are designed basically to help us get the tools that we need so that we can be more effective at the one singular thing that God left us to do, and that's to make disciples of the whole world. And so the various versions of the Great Commission as they come through the Gospels and that sort of thing has been taught already before that it's, it's simply the New Testament restatement of what we would have found from the very beginning. And so this morning we've already gone back to the beginning and gone back to Eden, but you know Genesis 1.28, the original command is be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, and, and really that is, that's the Great Commission, just to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And when it was given to Adam, we, again, this is just review, just setting it up, when it was given to Adam, Adam was, again, we already saw it this morning, a son of God. And so the command was given to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth with sons of God. Okay, then Adam, by transgression, fell, and we now, in Christ, are become the sons of God, and, and we're to reproduce the spiritual life as sons of God and multiply that throughout all the nations of this world. And, and so when we think about this replenishing the earth, I like to go to Acts 1.8, and the Acts 1.8 version of the Great Commission, in my mind, is the thing that makes that very clear, where it says you'll receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and the sign of the Holy Ghost coming upon you is, you know, not speaking with other tongues. It's not having miracles and wonders and healings and all this sort of thing. The sign that the Holy Ghost has come upon you is that you'll be witnesses unto me. And the thing that hits me every time I read this is the way that the Lord inspired this sentence to come out, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. And and this idea of not either or, well, I happen to be in my Jerusalem, I don't happen to be in my birthplace's uttermost, or whatever you want to call it, it actually says both and. It's not either or. And, and if you're just a logical thinker, that creates a logical dilemma. Because how can you possibly be in more than one place at one time? Right? So if you think of it in the physical realm, obviously, it's actually an impossibility but it's not an impossibility if you believe in biblical discipleship. Because through biblical discipleship, you reproduce the life of Jesus Christ that's in you into another person. Yes, it's the Lord that does it, but he uses you as the vehicle to do it. And, 
you reproduce your Christian life as a son of God into another. And by so doing, you effectively multiply your presence and as a result, multiply your ministry opportunities so that you truly can be in more than one place at one time by training disciples and leaving them there while you may be in a different place. And so, hence we have this idea of what are some of the processes we need to look at? How can we look at this theme of identifying the right people? How do we do that? How do we pick guys to make sure, I mean, anybody who's had any experience in ministry and, and trying to make disciples understands um, that you're going to strike out a few times. Uh, everybody knows you're going you know, to get some losses. And you invest and you invest and whatever happens, life happens, sin happens, um, circumstances happen, things happen, and you know, it doesn't work out. Okay, well, that's, you know, that's a shot to the gut, and that hurts, and how much time did I waste, and all this kind of... Okay, you work it out however you want to, but the truth of the matter is you want to consider how important it is to identify the right guy, right? Jesus spent all this time, goes up the mountain to pray before he decides to pick who he's going to pick, right? So identification of the right people is... That's really important. We'll look at that. And then the training of those people, we'll look a little bit at that, and then the actual nuts and bolts at, at some level, kind of a cursory level, of actually sending them out. Because once you get to the point where you can reproduce maturity and then relocate that maturity in a new location, well, now you're effectively in more than one place at one time. Now you're both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria, right? And so the, through this effort, we can, we can be all around the world. And, and it, this needs to land on us, it needed to land on me, in a very personal space, not just the general philosophy, amen, we're all for that. No, how am I, how is God using my personal life to reproduce it in multiple locations as much as the Lord will allow? Because I hope you all are doing that too, but I want mine. Like, I want to get in on it. I want to make sure that I'm doing my part. I'm pulling my weight, right? And I'm, I'm in on the plan as well. And so this then, this great commission, this one thing that's left for us becomes our stewardship in the church age. And the stewardship is, well, it's, it's pretty clear. Jesus taught us about stewardship. I, apologies to the few folks from New Philly here, I don't exactly know why, but we've been landing in Luke 16 a lot back home, and I said after today, I'm done. I'm not going to Luke 16 for a while. Anyways, Luke 16 is Jesus teaching about stewardship, and so, you know, the story starts out in verse 1, he said also unto his disciples, there was a certain rich man which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods, and he called him and said unto him, how is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship. For thou mayest be no longer steward. And the story goes on about how this steward goes and cuts deals with the guys who owed to the master and you owe him 80, give me 60, blah, 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 you know, and, and ultimately the master praises him for it. That's not really the issue I want to deal with. I just want to point out the fact that Jesus addresses the issue of stewardship and, and this is a parable, right? This is a story where he says there's a certain rich man. Well, the certain rich man in the story is Jesus Christ. 
And the fact that he had a steward, well, he wasn't a good steward, but he had a steward. Well, I get it that there can be, and there's always a, a Jewish application that leads to a tribulation kingdom application, but there can be a practical application for a church-age believer. There's no question about it. We are stewards of what God has given to us, the resources he's given to us, and there's coming a day when the certain rich man is going to return and call us into account. Well, that's most certainly the judgment seat of Christ. We will all give account of our stewardship. The sin has been taken care of on Calvary, but, but our works and our efforts will be called into an account. And so when we think about this issue, and again, this is all introductory material and review for most all of you, for, but certainly when we look at the overarching issue of dispensationalism and the, the time which is referred to as the time of the church, there is one leading steward. There is a chief steward of the church age, and that's certainly the Apostle Paul. It's just as clear as it possibly can be. And, and throughout the New Testament, and I'm about to give you a whole list of verses. I'm actually going to read them, and I, I don't mean to embarrass anybody like, you, this, like we're breaking new ground here. But the Bible is very clear. It commands us to follow Paul. And, and it doesn't do it just once, even though once could be enough. And it doesn't do it just twice because the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word is established. It doesn't do it just three times. I mean, it, I have like at least 11 different references to it. And if you'll just humor me for a second, I want to read them for emphasis sake, okay? So just hear these things. They'll probably jump up on the screen. But I just put them in the order as they appear coming through the New Testament. Romans eleven fourteen. If by any means, Paul says, I may provoke to emulation them which are of my flesh. The Jews, right? And they might save some of them. So he wants to provoke them that they would emulate, that they would do what Paul does. 1 Corinthians 4, 16. Wherefore I beseech you, be ye followers of me. Very direct. 1 Corinthians 11, 1. Everybody knows that. Be ye followers of me of me even as I also am of Christ. Galatians 4.12, Brethren, I beseech you, be as I am, for I am as ye are. You've not injured me at all. Philippians 3.17, Brethren, be followers together of me and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. Philippians chapter 4, verse number 9, Those things which ye have both learned and received and heard and seen in me do. Do those things, and the God of peace shall be with you. 1 Thessalonians 1, verse 6, And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7 through 9, For yourselves know how ye ought to follow us. For we behaved not ourselves disorderly among you, neither did we eat any man's bread for naught, but wrought with labor and travail night and day that we might not be chargeable to any of you, not because we have not power, but to make ourselves an ensample unto you to follow us. There's a theme here. 1 Timothy 1, 16, Howbeit for this cause I obtain mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering. It almost makes you think that Paul was an extra hard case because Jesus had to use all his longsuffering for Paul. For a pattern, that's why he did it. For a pattern to them, which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. And you know, everybody is familiar with 2 Timothy 2 too, but again, that's a that's a follow me verse. The things that you've heard of me among many witnesses, those, those are the things you follow, those are the things that you teach. 
Those are the things you pass on to everybody else. So we get it. We understand. We're supposed to follow Paul. And I, and I hope the longer list, right, just kind of really hammers down for you the fact that this is critically important. The Lord is trying to get our attention and say, don't, don't miss this. You can't read very far with yet, without yet another reminder. But what does that mean specifically? What does it specifically mean to follow Paul? Well, certainly there are things that it specifically doesn't mean. And I think that's important because you are certainly not supposed to follow the specific details of his personal life experiences, right? I mean, I, I don't know you all, but I'm, I feel pretty confident saying nobody in this room got saved the same way Paul got saved. I mean, you know, that Damascus Road thing was kind of cool to read about, but I mean, that ain't happening. We're not falling down blind, and Jesus, Jesus had to witness to Paul. Everybody else was afraid of him, right? He had miraculous training with Jesus and Jesus alone directly in the desert, hidden away from everybody else. Like, nobody's discipling Paul. They're afraid of him. Like, Jesus had a special time with Paul. Okay, he was an apostle, which means that he had the signs of the apostle, and he had the miracles and the signs and the wonders and all that stuff going for him. That's not the case for us anymore today. His specific manner, as Paul's manner was throughout the book of Acts, was that he would go into these cities and he would preach as the guest traveling rabbi and he would go into a synagogue. Well, how many people have that ministry today? Nobody's got. That, that's not the stuff that you follow. The specific details of the manner of how God used him, that's not the issue, right? That was his life and specifics. You have yours. But rather, as the chief steward of this dispensation, he was given the gospel to take to the world. That's what he was given. And that's what he said in Ephesians 3 and 6 and 7 where he talks about this grace and he says that it was given unto me, right? For you, it was given to me. And he often referred to the gospel in places like Romans 2.16 and so many other places. He referred to it as my gospel. My gospel. That's kind of interesting. So I would say then specifically the idea to follow Paul, this is in your notes, is to follow his ministry pattern. And I often teach this in the context of missions, but like we read back in 1 Timothy 1.16, he says, look, Jesus showed in me first the long-suffering for a pattern. And so Paul, without question, left us a pattern, right? And yeah, I teach it frequently in the issue of missions, but the truth of the matter is missions is just ministry. It's just maybe in a different location. Ministry is ministry. Discipleship is discipleship. Evangelism is evangelism. If you have to move, okay, move. If you've got to learn a language, learn a language. If you don't, great. I mean, whatever. It's, nothing changes. There's, there's not a magic pill. There's not a, some, you know, some secrets for people who happen to get on an airplane. It's ministry. It's all the same. And I believe that this pattern that God has left for us and the specific steps of what it means to follow Paul are found in Acts 14. And at the end of chapter 14 of Acts, we have Paul and Barnabas concluding that first missionary journey. And through those verses, and we're not going to dig into them all, we're just going to kind of hit them as a reminder and then we'll refer to them, is 
what I think is a clear eight-step pattern for fulfilling the gospel ministry and the Great Commission during the church age. And the thing I'll want you to see, spoiler alert, right, is that it ends with establishing New Testament local churches. That's what it ends with. And the necessary step to establishing biblical New Testament local churches is ordaining elders. Because if you don't have God-proven, qualified leadership, you can't start a church. And anybody that has a group of people without that kind of a leader, they call themselves whatever they want, and that's why people make up parachurch ministry organizations because they don't want to submit to the biblical scrutiny of the qualification of the leaders. And so, you know, make it up as you go, good luck. But at the end of the day, we have a pattern. So let's just read together Acts 14. I'm going to start in verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, confirming the souls of the disciples and exhorting them to continue in the faith that we must through much tribulation enter into the kingdom of God. And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they believed. And after they'd passed through Pisidia, they came to Pamphylia. And when they had preached the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come, they gathered the church together and rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith in the Gentiles. And there they abode long time with the disciples. And I think that this is what, this is the pattern because you can take this skeletal outline and you can apply it anywhere you live on the planet. You can apply it wherever you go. You can apply it to whatever it is you do. And so, again, at the end of the day, the real issue is, and they ultimately went back to their home church and they had fellowship with them and that's cool too, but the, the real pattern of getting the work done ends with establishing churches, ordaining elders and establishing churches. And then you can leave them there and go do it again somewhere else. And, and this really becomes, in my mind, the, it has to be the big picture target of everything we're doing. So identifying, training, and sending leaders. So, you know, before you can get to that point, though, there's these prerequisite steps that are in the pattern. You have to obviously start with evangelism. He preached the gospel to that city. You have to do the follow-up and basic discipleship where he taught many the many that responded to the evangelistic message, then you got to provide continual positive reinforcement, right? Confirming the souls of the disciples and continuing encouragement because they're going to want to quit because life gets hard in ministry, swimming upstream. And so you're exhorting them to continue and they're going to need to learn some of those issues that we heard about in the first hour. They're gonna, there's going to be pain and suffering associated with following the Lord. And so we must through much tribulation right enter into the kingdom of god and so there's going to be difficulty with all of that and well we see that paul followed this biblical model and other bible characters followed this biblical model too because apparently it's just the way that god works and so he's consistent it's the pattern and uh if we're going to identify train and send qualified men to reproduce the ministry of jesus christ well i think we need to do it this way and and i'm going to go at it with four steps. So not, you know, the, I'm not super clever. Anybody who knows me knows that. I just try and put titles on stuff that is something you can remember and reference. So identifying, training, sending leaders, just something, oh yeah, that's what he talked about. 
So you'd think I'd have three points identifying training and set, and those aren't my three points. I have four points, and they all start with S. So, you know, here you go. So the first point is actually called the setup. And uh, we're going to look at how to identify the potential future leaders, and that certainly is important. But first, I think there has to be a prerequisite, and so I'm calling it a setup. If you don't have a prerequisite to the proper identification, well, then you're identifying the wrong people, and, and you're going to be wasting a lot of time, right? I mean, how, if you don't have some sort of a filter, if you don't have some sort of a way to go at it on the front end, how exactly are you going to identify people? You just, you just randomly picking a dude because you like him? Um, some people do that. Um, you're going to just, you're going to pick some dude because, well, I mean, his, his daddy was a preacher, and so I guess he's supposed to follow in his steps. Um, you're just going to pick some guy because, you know, like King Saul, he's, he's tall, he looks good, he's gifted, he's got skills, he's got, okay, you're going to do that? Well, no, not if you're smart, you're not. Those aren't the things that you're going to do, right? Everything that needs to take place needs to take place in the way that the Lord does it, and that's going to be decently and in order, right? And so this is just the setup. This is just the, this is the initial, you know, rough grid screen filter. We're going to shake, you know, all the rocks through and see what falls through on the other side. And there's two broad categories that we need to make sure everybody is exposed to. And the first one is pretty obvious, and it won't need a lot of explanation, and that's education. And so letter A is education. This is your general training. This is something that must be available to all believers in your assembly. You should have available a system of biblical education. And some churches just call it a Sunday school program or whatever, but I would argue that that's not enough. You have to have a biblical discipleship philosophy. That's what this conference is all about every year. And so everybody kind of knows that, but let me just say this. It it needs to be, if you're a leader in your assembly, it needs to be pushed from up front. It needs to be prioritized. It needs to be talked about. It needs to be emphasized all the time that everybody understands. Because, you know, people are dumb. And, you know, you say it, you know how they say, it, if you're a pastor, about the time you're sick of talking about stuff is about the time they're starting to hear it. And that's weird that that's true, but that's true. So you've got to keep talking about it. And so it needs to be pushed from the pulpit, it needs to be led from the front, and it's critically important to their growth and development. If, they, if the people don't see that, well, then they're never really going to learn anything. They, they can only learn so much once a week sitting in a room like this for an hour. And so if a church wants to reproduce ministry, it's critically important that they develop a path for that growth, and that that path be written and made clear such that everybody who's a part of your assembly, they can know this is where I start at square one, and when I'm done with square one, I go to square two, and when I'm done with square two, I go to square three, and however many squares you make. And whatever the path is, that's the path. And they can know that when I'm done with square last, for us it's four, then, then I'm done. I'm actually, I've been proven. And, uh, and that, that's critically important. In my opinion, having such a written stated graphic path for growth it is the our church's application of Habakkuk 2.2 write the vision make it plain upon tables that he may run that readeth it uh, the people need a written vision they need it plain they need it in such a way that they can see it they can understand it 
and they can run with it. In my opinion, this is nothing more than your church's stated goal and plan for education, for the how can I grow? What do I need to be involved in? How do I get from here to there, right? And what it does for you when you have such a plan is it allows you, and I think this is so important, to be impartial in your stewardship of God's people. Because God is no respecter of persons. And neither should you be. And, and what I need is I need a system that in the quiet time with the Lord, we've developed a system that is biblical, defensively biblical, that if any individual will just say, I'll submit and be a part of it, they will be embraced to be a part of it. And it doesn't matter if they're dorky. It doesn't matter if they're weird. It doesn't matter if they don't. No, they're, they're faithful and humble and willing and God bless. He's going to use them because those are the people God uses. God uses all the weirdos like me. He uses anybody who's willing. And, and that's a blessing. And so you need a system that removes your emotions out of it. It removes your partiality out of it. You don't have to say, hmm, well, that guy, I'll say yes to him. You don't, you don't want to have that. So anybody who completes the path then becomes a potential candidate for further responsibility, right? Regardless of who they are. And maybe more importantly is the negative corollary to that. Anybody who won't complete the path necessarily won't be considered for anything further because they're demonstrating some hindrance. They're demonstrating some level of selfish rebellion. And so, you know, you don't cast them aside, but you, you, you got to help them figure out what's wrong. But that's only step one. Now, it's critically important step one, and it's a, it's a whole massive subject of biblical training, and it takes years to achieve, but, but every believer in your church needs to understand that they need to know the Bible for themselves. Because let me just tell you something, and I know you know this, but if, they, if, they're not, if they're not doing that, there's no hope for them ever being a leader. There's no hope for them ever being right, righteously ordained and sent out. If you're not a Bible guy, who are you leading? What are you telling them, right? So you got to get, you get your education, no question about it. But education alone is never enough, and so letter B is experience. You have to have experience. Academics are never enough. There's no profession in the world where a kid straight out of school with no experience knows what the heck he's doing in his first job, right? I got an engineering degree, and the first job that I got in Decatur, Alabama, they, I worked at a chemical plant down by the river, and, and, and at that company, every, all the workers had, you know, you wear hard hats out in the factory and stuff, and, and depending on what um, department you worked for, they had different colors for the hard hats. The engineers had blue hard hats and the operators had whatever color hard hat they had and all this sort of thing. But if you were a new hire engineer, you had a green hard hat <laughs> so that everybody in the plant could see you coming. <laughs> they had to know, oh, this is the guy who doesn't know anything even though he makes more money than I do. But the truth of the matter is, they know, they see you coming. And they, the company, I actually kind of appreciate it eventually. And then when you earn your blue hard hat, you're like, I got a blue hard hat now, you know. Now I can make fun of the green hard hat. Okay, the point is, everybody has to have some OJT on the job training. 
right? Teachers have student teaching. Tradesmen have apprenticeships. Medical people have residency practices, military, sports, tons of training, tons of practice, tons of drills. And I don't need to tell this crowd that ministry is way more important than all those things. So therefore, people in ministry need to actually be busy doing the work. And you as the leaders need to see them serving in the body under the leadership of someone else. And these things take their form, hopefully, naturally, through the personal discipleship process. And as people are learning new things and the teacher can gently guide them to take more personal application... So some of the basic goals of discipleship, like daily Bible reading and prayer and surrendering to baptism and church membership, and then ultimately starting to take the gospel seriously and be involved in personal evangelism as well, and, and taking these steps little by little, finding a place to serve within the body of the church. Maybe it's some menial duty, but it's something that you're helping the body and we see these examples from the scriptures. It's, again, this is all really introductory, but I think it's important because these are the filters through which we're going to identify the guys we're going to really work with. So what did Jesus do? Matthew 4, 19, follow me, and he's going to do something with you. He's going to make you a fisher of men, right? Acts chapter 1 starts out, the former treatise I've made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and to teach. So it's never just about the teaching. It's always about the doing with the teaching. Paul did the same thing. We talked about following Paul and all those different ways that he said, look, I'm a pattern. I taught you the things, the things you've heard of me. Teach those to others, right? And let me just say, anytime if you find yourself emphasizing one of those two things to the exclusion of the other, well, then you're out of balance and your setup is incomplete because you have to have both. Otherwise, nobody's going to be qualified for anything. You can, you can, you've met, we've all met the people who have a lot of Bible education and don't ever do anything. Some of the most irritating people you've ever met in your life. And we've, and we've all met people who are hard workers, but they're Bible illiterates and they're dangerous. They're dangerous. And you might thank God for them if they push a broom or something, but the truth of the matter is you don't want to turn them loose with the Bible because they don't know it. So education and experience are the two things that become that filter. And when you're working that system, then you can start to see the cream rise to the top and there'll be people who will stand out from the crowd and these are the guys who you'll see, they love to learn. These are the ones who actually memorize all their verses and, and they're excited about doing that. They... These are the ones that are actually making real life change. They're actually dropping bad habits and they're developing new disciplines in their life. And these are the ones that are serving faithfully. You don't have to call them on Sunday morning and say, where are you at, bro? We're supposed to, you're supposed to be in your spot here and nobody's here. These aren't the, they're never doing that. You have to keep reminding them. These are the guys that when they're in their spot, they're displaying genuine joy doing those kind of things. And and these are the guys that are always desirous of more. You have to usually hold them back and say, don't get overextended. Do what you're doing well for a while and we'll get you some new things to do. When you see those character qualities working through the setup, well, now you're ready to identify some people. 
See where I'm going? Now you're ready to identify some people. These people move into what I'll call the candidate pool, right? And so the identification, I actually like using the word, and this is point number two in your outline, selection. It, it, you're identifying them. You're, you're literally choosing them. You're selecting them. Who are the people that we're going to select as these candidates for potential leadership? Well, only the people who successfully made it through the setup. If you're not working the setup, then, man, you're going to get in all kind of trouble when you start thinking about who you're going to select. And so there's some warnings that we need to be aware of. One of the things that you should never be doing in your selection process is you should never be selecting solely from people who are volunteers. That's always going to get you in trouble. We see that with King Jeroboam, right? 1 Kings 13, 33 and 34. After this thing, Jeroboam returned not from his evil way, but made again of the lowest of the people, priests of the high places. Whosoever would, he consecrated him. And he became one of the priests of the high places. Jeroboam's like, man, we're all messed up. We need to get this temple thing rolling. Um, I don't really know how that goes, but... Who wants to be a priest? Got any priests in the house? Let's get some priests lined up. Oh, I'll do it. Okay, you. You're a priest. You're official. That's what he did. Verse 34, and this thing became sin under the house of Jeroboam, even to cut it off and destroy it from off the face of the earth. Uh, Jeroboam is not looked upon favorably throughout the scriptures. <laughs> Among his many sins is the fact that he had no discernment. And he picked leaders just from... Now look, every church knows... You can't survive without volunteers. The church is a volunteer organization. We work off volunteer donations. We have volunteer labor. I get it. People have to be willing to do stuff. But a lot of times people volunteer for stuff they're not qualified for. And, and we've had people in our church that have come from other churches. They, they lived in other places. They get a job. They come to our town. Not very often you come to our town for a job, but sometimes. And they'd be like, I've never been in a church before where you actually had a screening process. You just don't let people do whatever they want to do. You actually vet people first. He's like, that's kind of cool. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know where you've been, but yeah. So never solely from volunteers and never solely from academics. Because, you know, your, your typical Bible college grad kid, right, thinks he knows it all. I got me a degree now. Give me a job. Well, that's risky, right? I mean, that's... That's legitimately what we saw in the Pharisees accusing Jesus. In John 17, 15, the Jews marveled, saying, How knoweth this man letters? How is Jesus so smart, having never learned? He never went to our schools. He doesn't have our pedigree. Well, the problem is these Pharisees did have all those things, but somehow they missed the, they missed the real deal, right? So education alone is never enough. How do you select the right people? Well, I think this is important. And this is the next thing. It's always by recommendation. People are recommended. It's got to be in concert with spiritual leadership. We go back to our passage in Acts chapter 14 and verse 26, and it says, Thence, thence they sailed to Antioch, Paul and Barnabas, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. They were recommended to go out and do what they did. The candidates are selected. They're chosen from among many, right? That's because Matthew 20, 16, the last shall be first, the first, last. Many are called, few are chosen. 
There's many. You set up your path for growth. You call everybody. Let's get on the path. Let's get our education. Let's get involved in ministry. And then you wait and see who shakes out. When somebody shakes out, you're like, well, I choose that guy. I want that guy. That guy's working. I want that guy. So we have some Bible examples of that, of course. The first one is Paul himself. We call him Paul the pioneer. Of course, we talked about his salvation in Acts chapter 9. We talked about his training on the backside of the desert, referred to in Galatians chapter 1. And then he goes back, and we keep, pick up the picture again. That parenthesis is in between the story of Acts 9. You go back in Acts 9, and you find that he's serving right there in Damascus, and he's leading people to the Lord, and he's doing his thing. And it, he was doing so well. His fame spread abroad, right? So that later on, by the time you get to Acts 11.25, the Jews needed to, mo to know more about what in the world is God doing with the Gentiles? How are we going to find out what God's doing with the Gentiles? And they're like, hey, wait a minute. Isn't there that guy, Saul of Tarsus? I heard that he's doing something with Gentiles, so let's dispatch Barnabas, and he's going to go find Saul, right, to report back to the apostles. Why? Because Saul had experience now doing ministry among Gentiles. And the Jewish apostles had no idea what it was all about. So we got to find some guy with some experience. Let's go get him. Let's go find him. The next guy is Silas. Let's call him the servant. Sometimes people come across your path and they're good guys. They've had experience. They've learned a lot of stuff, but you don't really know them personally. It takes time to vet that out, right? But if they come with a recommendation from some existing spiritual authority and leadership in their life, well, that carries a lot of weight, or it should anyways, right? And so you go into Acts chapter 15, if you want to just look in the next page or whatever, and you have the story where they come in... in uh, and meet Silas, like in verse 25, it seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul. Verse 26, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they're saying, man, we're looking for some guys who have proven their resolve. They've, they've hazarded their lives for this cause. And they're like, oh, wait, wait, we know a guy. Then we know two guys. Judas and Silas. Let's, let's look at those guys. These guys were gifted servants. You can go down to verse number 32. It says, And Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. These guys were demonstrating their spiritual gifts. They were active in ministry. They had resolve. They were singularly focused. They demonstrated they had a desire. Keep reading, verses 33 and 34. After they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. Notwithstanding, it pleased Silas to abide there still. They're like, okay, we're done with you, thanks. And he's like, no, I want to hang out with you guys. He could have gone back home. He's like, no, we, we, we want to stay. Can I stay? Well, that's a, that's a good thing worth looking for. 1 Timothy 3 says, if any man desire the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. I mean, there's something to having a desire for that. The next guy in the list is Timothy. He was, he was found recommended by others as when he was just a teenager. That's Acts 16. The next chapter, then came he, Paul, right to Derby and Lystra. And behold, a certain disciple was there. He was already saved and he was already being discipled. He was already being trained. Named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, 
which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. He had a good testimony. He came with a recommendation. People that knew him were able to testify, this is the real deal, this is a good dude. Then it goes on in verse 3, I want you to notice, him would Paul have go, to go forth with him, and he took and circumcised him because of the Jews that were in those quarters, for they all knew um, that his father was a Greek. So Paul chose him, and Timothy was, I mean, you, you figure it however you want to, he was willing to sacrifice Paul said, we, we got something to take care of before we go on with this ministry. It's going to cost you a little bit. And he's like, okay. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine. But, but in principle, willingness to sacrifice. I mean, you count your sacrifice. <laughs> in each of these cases, yes, some varied circumstances. I'd say their selection process was basically the same. They were proven through the setup process of education and experience. And now they were ready for more. So they were identified and they were selected. And once a candidate has been identified and selected, then it's time to move into the next level of specific training. And this would be specific training designed to prepare them for vocational positions. This is something of a higher level, and so we're calling that supervision. Supervision. And so once you identify a good candidate, and once you know that you know, they've proven themselves up to a certain level, obviously, they, they still have a lot of work to do, right? They know some doctrine. They know some ministry. But there's going to be a lot of rough edges. As we'll see in a minute, there's... There's still pride that needs to be dealt with. There's the issue of self that has to die out. There's specific skills and tools and training and, and being a part of things that in a day-to-day -day ministry work that they have no clue exists. If, if they're the enthusiastic church member that your church couldn't live without, they legitimately love the Lord and are willing to do anything, they still don't know what it really looks like behind the scenes. And behind the scenes, it's frequently not very pretty. If, you know, a lot of really good average church members enjoy a little bit of ignorance is bliss. If you understood how dirty it can get, if you understood how, how evil people that name the name of Jesus can get, and I know everybody has a level of understanding of that, well, that can really discourage you. That, can that almost is enough, and it is for a lot of guys. It's enough to make them say, no thanks, not interested. Well, at the end of the day, before you turn a guy loose as a leader, he has to peek behind the curtain. He has to see the dirty truth of how people really are when they take their mask off, right? It's important. Ministry work isn't as sexy as it sounds, right? So this continued training I'm calling supervision is actually going to be a fair amount of overlap with what Brian talked about yesterday. So the idea of apprenticeship applies in this point right here. I'm going to try and come at it with a little different of an angle, uh, but it's the same basic idea, right? I, I would call it an internship or an apprenticeship, same, same kind of an idea. You're, you're now serving 
in a, in a more dedicated way, but you're still under supervision. That's the idea. And what we're going to see, like I mentioned, is that it's at this stage, and I believe this is really one of the, if not the, core issue that God is trying to drill down on. This is the stage at which a man or a woman's pride is really going to be revealed. I mean, if it exists, it's going to be revealed here. Because that candidate who's now under an internship-type position, is they're going to be asked to do some humbling, menial tasks. And in fact, what, what we see through the Scriptures is actually... What they're asked to do, it's, it's very generally referred to, is they served another man. Somebody was out doing ministry, some, some headliner was out doing ministry, and these guys are just like, well, they just ministered to his needs. They just gave him whatever he needed. Oh, yeah, Timothy, when you're done, come and bring the cloak and the parchments. I, I need those too. And he's like, stinking parchment carrier. What the <laughs> heck am I on? I thought I was in the ministry. Right? I mean, they're going to just be like, hey, by the way, go get me some water. I'm getting thirsty. Or, or go take this. Okay, sure, whatever. I guess that's what they're like. I mean, this is the kind of stuff. And you're like, man, I, was, I thought I was doing better before I signed up for this. Yeah, well, that's the whole point. You've got to see the nuts and bolts and the day-to-day and the administration and the boring stuff and the mean stuff and the weird stuff. You've got to learn it all. Or you can't be a leader. That's just how it works. See, learning to serve under another man as your leader is actually a great lesson because you learn to be a team player. You learn to work together with others without having to be the leader, right? You get to see how an experienced leader handles things and when things don't go the way that you think that they should go. You learn, you get to learn to submit to that authority. And that is the exact kind of experience that you need to prepare you to eventually lead others, at least to lead them well when your turn comes. So we see this modeled in the lives of a lot of different people, and I have some examples for you. So letter A would be Jesus and the disciples, of course. And again, I know... You're an educated crowd, so it made it easy for me. I'm just kind of hitting a few key things for you to understand. I know that in principle and in depth, you can dig this stuff out even further yourselves, but Jesus trained men, how? By having them be with him while he was doing the work. And that's specifically, explicitly, what he said in Mark 3.14. And he ordained 12... That they would go and conquer the world. No, that they would be with him. And that he, oh notice, might later send them forth to preach. But you know what you're going to do before we send you forth to preach? You're just going to hang with me for a while. That's what you're going to do. You're going to spend time with me for a while. Jesus identified these men for the purpose that one day... He'd send them out. But first, they needed to prepare still. Still they had things that they needed to learn before that ultimate assignment and faith and trust can be given to them. And listen, there's just something to putting in your time. There's just something to that. You, you just can't 
you know, every teenager wants to be an adult overnight. You just, it just takes time. It just takes a while, right? And so even in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 20, you're teaching them not just things, you're teaching them to observe things. So teaching them to observe things means you're teaching them how to do the things, but they're learning how to do the things because they're observing you do them, right? So if in our system of discipleship and training, it doesn't include us going and taking them by the hand and showing them how to do things, if all we do is tell them that they should be evangelists and never go evangelizing with them, and if all we do is tell them to read their Bibles and never sit down and maybe read together and study with them. If we just tell them you ought to pray every once in a while, we don't actually spend time praying with them. If we tell them that they're supposed to be serving in some area and we don't actually go and help them and do it with them or they see you doing it, well, that, what do you expect? Listen, our discipleship has to have application points. It can't be merely academic. And I think that a lot of the failures that a lot of us have experienced and generations of discipling people who then are supposed to disciple people who then are supposed to disciple. Why do we always keep having to have discipleship reset Sundays or whatever? Because a lot of the people on the downline aren't continuing to make sure that they're actually showing people. And a lot of the people might say, well, I didn't really memorize those verses, so I'm sure not going to make you memorize them because you'll memorize them and you'll reveal the fact that I never did. Or whatever the case might be. We've got to be a part of being involved together. Let's go to the next one, Paul and Timothy. Of course, this is going to be on the list, right? So just notice, Acts 19.22. So he sent unto Macedonia two of them that ministered unto him, Timotheus and Erastus, that he himself stayed in Asia for a season. Eventually came the time that Paul's like, all right, Tim, I need you to go on a mission. You're on your own, buddy. Go down there and take care of that issue. But before that ever happened, Timothy was already known as the guy that ministered unto Paul. That's what he did. He just hung around, followed Paul around, just gave him whatever he needed, just took care of Paul for a long time, and Paul finally realized, look, this guy's doing a good job. I can't be both in Jerusalem and Judea. I'm going to dispatch Timothy over there because now he's got it. He can take care of it. He did the same thing with a lot of other guys. I picked in letter C, Paul and Epaphroditus. Epaphroditus is another guy, Philippians 2.25. Yet I supposed it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and companion in labor and fellow soldier, but your messenger, oh, notice who he is. He that ministered to my wants. Um, Epaphroditus, I would like something. Of course, wants literally means needs. When Paul had a need, Epaphroditus. Paul had a dude that whenever he needed anything, go handle that. That's handy. It's kind of cool. Well, apparently it's important because once he proved himself, by the way, learning to humble himself and willing to do that and seeing Paul work through stuff, now when he's sent to go do it, he's like, well, I don't know, what would Paul do? Well, I've been watching him do it for a couple of years. I guess I know what he would do, so that's what I'll do, right? And then we'll go to the next one, Paul and John Mark. Now, you know this one because it, it's, the, it's the other side. It's the bad example, right? Acts 13, Paul gets cheesed because they're out serving, and John quit. John's like, I'm out. I don't like this. This ain't what I signed up for. Just sitting here following you around and carrying your coat and getting you water, whatever it is. I don't, I'm not interested. I'm going home. Life was better with mama. All right, go. Whiner. You know, I can just imagine Paul, right? 
And then you know the story. You come to the Acts 15 and the end of that chapter and Paul and Barnabas fight about it and this whole deal. And At the end in verse 38 it says, Paul thought not good to take with him with them, um, talking about John, whose surname was Mark, who departed from them from Pamphylia and went not with them to the work. Now, you know, I'll let you guys just have the freedom before the Lord to determine whether you think Paul was right or Barnabas was right. I know that eventually he got restored, and I know that he was valuable to Paul in ministry by the end, and so the natural result is to go with Barnabas on that one. But, I mean, Paul ran John Mark through the same filter he ran everybody through, and John failed. And Paul's like, you're done. Now, he, God's not done with him, but Paul was done with him. And uh, I think there's something to that. I want to spend a little time on this next one. I know that time's getting away from us, but I, I think it's important to spend a little time looking a little closer at Elijah and Elisha. Brian mentioned it briefly. I've got a couple of scriptures I want us to look at. And the story of Elijah and Elisha is worth you noticing a few of these scriptures if you never noticed them before, because I think it really does illustrate this, this very well. So in 1 Kings 19, verse 19, we have the introduction of Elisha. So Elijah's there. He said he departed thence, and he found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen before him, and he with the 12th, and Elijah passed by him and cast his mantle upon him. Why did Elijah select Elisha? Well, I would say it's because Elisha was busy plowing. He was turning the soil to plant the seed. And he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That means that Elisha was a part of of a ministry team, right? It's oxen picture ministers. That's 1 Corinthians 9, right? It's written in the law of Moses, thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does God take care for oxen? It's a good question. Or saith he it altogether for our sakes? Hmm, I wonder which one it is. You don't have to wonder, just keep reading. For our sakes. Not really that big a deal, it's an ox. He said it for your sake. No doubt this is written, that he that plows should plow in hope, and he that threshes in hope should be partaker of his hope. See, the oxen is a picture of a Christian minister. And he's plowing with a bunch of other guys. And he's at the back of the line. Why did Elijah, or what did Elijah have Elisha, this accomplished minister, what did he have him do next? What was, what, what was he calling him to do with this casting of the mantle? Well, back to 1 Kings 19, go on to verse 20. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, Let me, I pray thee, kiss my father and mother, and I'll follow thee. And he said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to thee? And he returned back from him and took a yoke of oxen and slew them and boiled their flesh with the instruments of the oxen and gave unto the people, and they did eat. And we could talk all about, you know, you know burn the ships. I, okay, that's cool too. But what I want to see is the last phrase. Then he arose, went after Elijah, and ministered unto him. Just served Elijah. Just followed him around. That's what he did. Leave the security of the team of ministers. Follow Elijah. Serve him personally with his needs. Getting to experience the real day-to-day -day life, the behind-the-scenes stuff. And in so doing, what did Elisha experience what exactly did he see what did he learn because he was willing to leave the security of the big team right to go serve one man i mean it doesn't seem as sexy right what did he actually experience well he experienced a lot of the cool stuff elijah was a part of 
He got to see Israel defeat the Syrian army in the valley. He gets to see him rebuke the king of Israel. He gets to see him call down fire on the messengers of the king. He walks so closely with Elijah that just before that time of his rapture, Elisha was among very few people that knew beforehand that this was when Elijah was going to be raptured out. And although he was admonished by Elijah, stay back here, I got something to do. He's like, no, I'm following you to the end. He saw the spirit horses of fire in a whirlwind. Don't just pass that thing by. That was awesome. And so what was the result of this training plan? Well, by the time it was at the very end, Elisha asked for that famous double portion of Elijah's spirit. And you know what? He got it. Because you go through those books and you find that Elijah, who, by the way, is the premier headliner for just about all prophets. When we talk about the law and the prophets, we talk about Moses and Elijah. Elijah has five recorded miracles. Elisha has ten. He has ten. He got the double portion. Elijah gets all the press. Elisha had a greater ministry. So now we can go back to Luke 16 for a minute, to the parable of the steward. And once the story is over, the lesson begins. And Jesus begins to teach the lesson that he was illustrating in the story. In verse number 10, he says, He that's faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much, and he that's unjust in the least is unjust also in much. If therefore you've not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? So there's all the lessons about being faithful in monetary issues, and that's cool, so that you can then be trustworthy and true spiritual riches. But in the context of the true spiritual riches, it's interesting, it says you have to first be proven that you can be faithful in that which is another man's ministry before anybody will give you your own ministry. Have you been proven faithful in another man's ministry? meeting his needs, whatever they are, and however weird they sound. That happens all the time. We've recently been privileged to send out a couple of guys from First Baptist Church, Kale's in Hungary and Matt's in Columbus, and both of those guys worked on our church staff together with us for a bunch of years. Now I realize that doesn't work for everybody, and not everybody's church has that opportunity or staff. That did actually work, with, that did work well for us. And where we're at in our situation, that, that I actually like the idea. Our local church staff could easily be, and I've always said this to our people as long as I've been there, it can easily be a revolving door. We can always bring up somebody else to take that role, but we want to send, you guys have had more insight to the actual dealings and workings of what it means to run a ministry, having worked on the staff of this church. And so... We try to look with that in mind and hiring is like, look, if we're going to bring a guy in, let's bring a guy in who can eventually be qualified to go out, right? I mean, it's, it's a good point in identity. That's what they did with, with Barnabas and Saul in Antioch. They were serving on the, on the staff of the church. And the Holy Ghost said, separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereinto I've called them. So once they're selected and supervised, under this God-ordained leadership, right? They've proven themselves faithful, capable. Then all that's left is the sending piece. And we're about out of time, but I think we can go through this pretty quick and kind of nail it. I don't have it tomorrow to come back, so we'll just, we'll, we'll be done. But I would, I would say, I think it's pretty obvious, and I'm good at that, so I'll do it. 
the sending thing is a serious undertaking. And it's because of 1 Timothy 5.22, where it says, lay hands suddenly on no man. That doesn't mean don't be a striker. It doesn't mean don't punch a guy in the face. It means don't lay your hands on them in biblical ordination if they're not proven. Lay hands suddenly on no man. And it goes on to say, and this is what the scary part is, neither be partaker of other men's sins. Because if you're going to be a part of the laying on of hands and the transferring of authority to that man, and then he goes out and acts a fool and gets involved in sinful foolishness, you're kind of connected to that. And I think it's written to pastors. It's written to pastors that ordain. That's why the pastors that ordain should be the ones that have personal involvement in the supervision of the candidate's growth and ministry. The supervising leader must see that the candidates pass that level five trial, you know, the idea of submitting to authority and humbling themselves and saying no to their desires and just going with the team and submit to the structure of biblical authority before they can be given the position of biblical authority. And I believe that is, Joe referred to it, that is the gift, 1 Timothy 4.14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which is given thee by prophecy with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. The gift is the biblical authority associated with the position of ministry leadership. That's not a, you don't get a spiritual gift when somebody lays hands on you. Charismatics think they do, but they don't. This is a gift of ministry authority. Go back to Acts 14, when they had ordained them elders in every church, well, it's a serious deal. So let's do this really quickly. Six investigative questions of sending. Who are we sending? Well, that's what I've already been talking about, so only the people that qualify through the process. What are they being sent to do? Everybody knows Acts 13, separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work. So they're, they're being sent to do a particular work. Geography is secondary. Biblically, that work is to be elders of a local church. That's what you're sending them to do. You're sending them to be elders of a local church. That's what Paul did. It's not to just be some freelance minister traveling about. Unless they're sent as church planting missionaries like the Apostle Paul. But if we're to follow the Apostle Paul... Paul himself doesn't ordain freelance traveling dudes. Paul ordains elders in churches, and that's what we should do. Uh, where and when will we send them? And really, this, this, is the, this is where the rubber hits the road. This is the question everybody's really interested in. And we're out of time. <laughs> okay, all right, two minutes. Go figure it out. Um, what are some of the specifics of strategically sending people into God's harvest. Well, I think you know this, sorry. You know, there's no set rules. There's no one size fits all. Ecclesiastes 9.11, right? The race isn't to the swift, the battle of the strong, right? Time and chance happens to them all. So there's an issue of time and there's an issue of chance. There's an issue of timing. Open doors of opportunity follow timing. And chance are the circumstances, the things that connect a person to a work. Things, you have to be open to the Holy Spirit's leading. So I say it this way, luck favors the prepared. 
I got to go to Albania in 1992. I was lucky. I've, I've said that. It's true. I got to be sent to a new place. And I, when I went, I went all alone. I wasn't married. I didn't have a ministry team. I didn't have a mission board. I was, I was literally an individual all alone. No friends, no co-workers. And I can tell that story and make it sound like, man, am I awesome. I trusted the Lord like nobody I know. Like I can, I can work that thing if I want to. The truth of the matter is several times prior to that in my life, I had already moved to new towns all alone, never knew anybody by myself and started over. It was just another move for me. I'd done it several times over. It wasn't that big of a deal. But I had prepared through our church's training program. I had experience in ministry. It was just a matter of timing, time and chance. That's all it was. And I'm not going to take the time. I actually have listed out every single guy that my ministry has had an opportunity to send out which encompasses three different churches in Albania, a foreign missionary to Turkey, and now a guy to Hungary and a guy in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm thankful for every single individual, but every single individual in every one of these stories I would have told you if we had time matches this, this pattern that we see. It's been fantastic. The last couple things to say real quick and I'm done. How should we send them? Well, technically, it's the laying on of the hands, but practically... I would say by giving them the full authority and autonomy to work on their own. In other words, don't be that guy who sends somebody out and then forever micromanages looking over their shoulder. If you're going to ordain them, then you need to commend them unto the Lord, right? You can continue to foster an open, friendly relationship with them, right? I mean, there's people on, there's churches on the other side, they ordain a guy and turn them loose and they're like, good luck. See you at the rapture. I mean, that guy who's getting started still has a lot of things he's not aware of in administrating a church, and you should be around to help him, but give him space, right? And then lastly, why should we send people? Well, it's because it's what God commanded us to do, right? It's the only way that we can be in both Jerusalem and Judea, et cetera, et cetera. And we want to glorify God with much fruit, right? That's John 15, 8. The Father's glorified when we bear much fruit, and you're only going to bear much fruit when you have generations of people out there continuing to multiply and replenish the earth. And that's what that's all about. We hope this message was a blessing to you. If you're interested in learning more about the Living Faith Fellowship, visit lffellowship.com. God bless.